Section 4 of The Book of Famous Sieges. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tommy Hersant, Carlsbad, California. The Book of Famous Sieges by Tudor Jenks. The Taking of Cities. The Siege of Troy. The attack upon Troy, which is supposed to have taken place very nearly twelve centuries before the birth of Christ, is, without doubt, a less skillful example of the art of taking cities than were many that preceded it. Certainly, in the story as it is told by Homer, there seems to be little more military art used in taking the city than might have occurred to the minds of a crowd of small boys or African savages. It may be that there was more use of devices in taking the city than Homer cares to mention, or, rather, we should say, than are told of in the poem or series of poems that are attached to the name Homer. The object of these poems was to show the bravery and the skill in the fighting of certain leaders of the two forces— both the poet and his audiences cared little or nothing about how the city was attacked, and cared a great deal to hear of the boasting speeches and personal combats with spear, shield, and sword, wherein the great fighters, Achilles, Agamemnon, Hector, and Paris, played the part of stage heroes. Next in interest to these personal fights came the stories of how gods and goddesses came down from the upper air to help one warrior or to trick another. The whole story of the ten years during which the Greek fleet was tied up along the shore and the Greek army was encamped upon the plain around the walled city shows us, therefore, little except the quarreling and fighting, the grief and joy of the petty kings and chieftains upon whom both armies depended for success. Even in the method of their fighting, there is nothing scientific. It is a matter only of which fighter is able to strike the hardest blows, or to throw his spear with most force, or to run away quickest when overcome, as no Greek warrior of those times ever hesitated to do. The American reader of the Iliad can hardly help noticing the strong likeness between the warfare carried on by Greeks and Trojans and that waged between the American Indian tribes at the time when the white men had but recently come to America. If there be an advantage, it is upon the side of the American Indians, in that there seems to us something more admirable in their silent fighting, their stoical bearing of wounds and injuries, and their manful endurance of whatever fate sent them. According to Homer, the Greeks shouted as they fought to terrify the enemy and to encourage their own side, and they burst into tears when hurt, and even yelled with agony when in pain. The honors to be gained in battle were alike in the two cases, as the Indian strove to take his enemy's scalp, and the Greek did his best to capture his enemy's armor. As the Indian chief would ride out and challenge his bravest enemy to single combat, so did the Greek heroes, and in both cases the important movements of the battle were delayed until the question of strength of the two champions could be settled, a matter that really should have been of no importance. Imagine, if you please, a general of today challenging to single combat a general of an opposing army while the troops gathered as if in a football field to see what would come of it. 
In the ten years during which the siege lasted, it would seem that the Greek army was strong enough at least to maintain its place around the city, in spite of the efforts of the Trojans to drive them away. And if the Greeks had known enough, there were many ways by which the Trojan wall could have been breached or undermined and thrown down or an opposing mound like that of the ancient eastern warriors could have been carried to the walls and the city thus captured but although we read in homer of the greeks building a wall to protect their camp there is no mention of any besieging work being carried toward the wall of the city itself in the early part of the poem we have in book third paris challenging menelaus to single combat and the duel following and the next book is a battle between the armies, merely an undisciplined struggle of two bodies of armed men in the open. In the seventh book, we see the Greeks building a wall around their camp, apparently for protection only, after the loss of the battle, since the Trojans are shown encamping on the field. Halfway through the poem, in book twelfth, we find the Trojans, under Hector, trying to assault the Greek camp in turn. In this attack, the enemy are unable to force their way across the ditch at the foot of the wall, and are compelled to descend from their chariots and attempt an attack on foot, the army having been divided into five bodies. Then the hero, Sarpedon, succeeds in breaking through the wall at one point, while Hector, throwing an enormous stone against one of the gates, breaks it down, and the Trojans drive the Greeks from their camp and their ships. The only artillery they used, if we may call it so, is stone-throwing, and the enormous stone cast by Hector is the only missile that seems worthy to be thought of as an attempt at bombardment. But even in this book, Homer gives more space to a marvelous portent, an eagle in the sky in conflict with a snake, than to the operations that resulted in breaking through the Greeks' defensive wall. A few words, however, show us the Trojans trying to dig away the mounds of earth and to set fire to the beams that support the earthworks, while the Greeks, upon top of the entrenchments, shower the besiegers with darts and arrows. This fight, by the way, is said to have taken place in a snowstorm. In the midst of this busy scene, the poet represents his fighters as pausing now and again to deliver long operatic speeches. But perhaps, as in the opera, this touch is not meant to be realistic. The actual breach of the wall made by Sarpedon, the Trojan champion, was accomplished by the use of a lever, which pried apart the great stones, and in the actual passing of the wall, there is a line to show that the Trojans made use of ladders or of some similar contrivance. The return of the Greeks to the battle is preceded by a shower of stones and arrows from the Greek marksmen, and the career of the victorious Trojans is cut short by a strong body of Greeks who resist them under the command of the two Ajaxes. But the final repulse of the Trojans comes about through the downfall of Hector, struck by a stone thrown by Ajax. And again, the Trojans betake themselves within the city, little or nothing having been accomplished by their sortie. Another attack of the Trojans is more successful in destroying the Greek wall, and the Trojans reach even the first line of the Greek ships, but are once more repulsed. 
Of course, like many other incidents about the city, this attack and repulse of the Trojan warriors is regarded as being brought about by the work of the gods, who interfered every moment to aid a friend or thwart an enemy. When the Trojans are pursued back to their walls and attempt to make a stand against the Greeks, Hector is frightened and caused to take refuge in the city by the appearance of the god Apollo. When once more the Greeks appear advancing against the walls of the city at the very beginning of Book 22nd, we at last hear of what looks like a systematic method of attack, for Homer tells us, how the Greek soldiers made their advance under the protection of their shields. The old Greek temples were covered by a roof, known as a testudo, and probably from its resemblance to this roof, the method of protecting themselves by holding their shields over their heads is likewise called the testudo, a name that has survived to our own time in natural history, since it has been applied to the tortoise because his shell is formed of plates closely set together and therefore resembles the ancient roof-like structure of shields under which soldiers were accustomed to protect themselves from arrows and other missiles in advancing against a besieged city. It is doubtful, however, whether the Greeks actually made the skillful joining of shields into a single roof over their heads that was afterward adopted by the Romans, and no doubt had been used by many other nations before them. Homer's Greek line simply speaks of their resting their shields upon their shoulders, and he does not give us any reason to suppose that this was not done by each soldier singly. As to the final capture of the city, there are some authorities who are inclined to doubt the whole story of the great wooden horse, stating that it is only a poetical way of expressing the fact that the Greeks gained entrance into the city by treachery through the opening of a gate that was known as the Horse Gate. It has been said, too, that the episode of the horse may come from a confused legend regarding that a battering ram was used, possibly with a horse's head. On the other hand, it does not seem likely that so peculiar a story, so full of detail and connected closely with many other events handed down from antiquity, was entirely an invention. We may, if we choose, accept it, and believe that a small body of soldiers could have been concealed in a hollow image, a great horse, and once within the city, could have stolen out and opened the gates to their comrades, particularly at a time when the Trojans believed the siege to have been abandoned. It was natural that the close watch over the wall should be given up, that only a small body of men should be left at the gates, and that a body of men, once within the city, could have held their own against an attacking force around one or two of the gates until the return of the Greek army from the island Tenedos, to which they had retired. Once within the city, the story of the siege is at an end. But from one or two incidents during the fight within the walls, we may gather something about the structure and the strength of the defenses. Thus, while the Greeks were trying to break into the Trojans' citadel, we are told, in the Aeneid, how a big tower at the top of the palace was loosened from its foundations and toppled down upon their heads by the work of one or two Trojans. 
as this is spoken of as a lofty tower from which the whole of Troy could be viewed, it was certainly looked upon as a main feature of the palace. We may, therefore, get some idea of the size and importance of the building when a main feature of it could, in a short time, by the use of levers, be torn from its foundations and hurled down upon the attacking Greeks. Another incident of the same attack was the destruction by Pyrrhus, the son of Achilles, of a great palace gate, which Pyrrhus beat from its fastenings single-handed, wielding an axe. These events seem to point out that the buildings, the palace, the citadel, the walls, were not of a very massive construction. Probably they were built mainly of bricks, after the usual fashion in neighboring parts of Asia, and partly of stone and woodwork. Certainly, if they had been of the massive masonry that investigators have found in some even more ancient cities, we should not hear of their destruction under so feeble an attack. It will be seen by this brief account of the siege of Troy that it was of little importance from a military point of view. Its greatness consisted in its being made the subject of a great poem, and in its connection with the Grecian mythology, the most poetic and fascinating series of fairy stories, myths, legends that the world has ever known. To the student of military affairs, the fighting around Troy seems crudeness itself. The main object of the campaign, the taking of the city, appears to interest the two armies least of all the affairs that occupy their attention. Personal squabbles, single combats, grand speeches, visions of gods and goddesses, all of these, Homer tells us, with a force, vigor, and simplicity no poet has since equaled. But a tribe of savages in Africa, to say nothing of the American Indians at their highest point of development, would have used more effective means and more ingenuity in taking a fortified place than can be found by a close reading of the Iliad and the Odyssey, or even of the Aeneid, where Virgil has continued Homer's story. Nor is it easy to understand why this should have been so. The Greeks, at least, were as practical-minded as any people of the world. Their land was full of fortified places. Their remote forefathers had built enormous structures, which seem massive to us who dig them up today. Yet, clever craftsmen as they were, they do not seem to have brought into use the devices for taking cities which had been known centuries before in Egypt and Babylonia as we see them depicted upon temple walls, and also had been used in a land with which the Trojans must have been in communication, that is, in the regions around the Tigris and Euphrates, where Assyria and Babylon were situated. In the next great sieges of which history tells us, some five or six centuries later, there is at least some science shown in the taking and defending of cities and forts. In fact, as we have already pointed out, the Greeks and Trojans were far more unskillful in these matters than were the great races in Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt many years before their times. The old carvings show that these people knew how to use the battering ram, how to undermine walls, how to build great mounds of earth up to the city walls, and also how to meet these different kinds of attacks. 
Our Bible has many references to show that the Jews had learned these arts from their neighbors and, like them, knew how to fight with slings, arrows, rams, ladders, and other weapons. But there is no need to do more than refer to this, since the arts of those early times remained unchanged and were employed by later generals. We shall return then to the city of Babylon and tell of its taking by the Persians under Cyrus or one of his generals. End of section 4